Good afternoon. I'm Carla Hayden, um, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and I must tell you we are delighted to have all of you here for another edition of our Writers Live series. And I can't wait to hear from our special guest this afternoon. Her first book, Always Wear Joy, My Mother, Bold and Beautiful, has definitely been one of my favorite books. And today she's here to discuss her new novel, One Flight Up. Now this afternoon, now our special guest, who is so chic and wonderful, <laughs> graduated from Harvard with honors in literature and history. And right after that, she went to work as a writer on The Cosby Show in a Different World. And many of you have seen her work. And in 1998, she co-created the series Lynx, where she was the executive producer. And I'm telling you, with um, uh, Daphne and Tim Reed, uh, the programs that they produce, so we were just really pleased to see that. She's uh, still a contributing editor um, at Essence, and her writing has appeared in Vogue, Town and Country, Travel and Leisure. If you saw the September issue of Vogue, you saw her like that. <laughs> that, you know, and her one-year thing. And also, um, she is my favorite fashionista. And... Um, just a special shout-out to everybody here. Um, when um, she found out that you were coming, unfortunately she couldn't be here because she's closing her clothing store, Vasari. And last yesterday was the last day, and Gail from Vasari said, ah, oh. so we're sending her a special book uh, for that. But please, without further ado, welcome to Baltimore in the Pratt Library, Susan Bale Scott. Good afternoon, everyone. I am, this is my first visit to Baltimore, and I am coming back. I'm a crab cake fanatic, and you all have real crab cakes, not what we serve in New York, which is breadcrumbs with a few crab cake strips. Uh, I have to give a special shout-out to my friend Betty J. Glasgow, who was the moving force behind getting me here. Betty had originally uh, suggested that I come to speak at her church. I said, I don't know, this, this is about four women cheating on their husbands. I don't want you getting excommunicated or anything on my account. We may, we may need to find another venue. So we do have to look at the irony of the fact that it's Sunday, it's the Sabbath for many Christians. Many of you have come from church, and I will be talking to you in part about this book about women breaking most of the commandments. Well, but it's okay because uh, there, there is, uh, there's a bigger point to it. This is no stranger than my being at the Congressional Black Caucus a few weeks ago and having to follow the eminent Harvard legal scholar Charles Ogletree and his wonderful book about Skip Gates's arrest. Uh, and it is a book about the deficiencies and the continued targeting of, of black men by the American judicial system. And I thought, who thought of this segue? <laughs> Injustice in America, the young and the pantyless. This is good. So thinking quickly on my feet, because in minutes I had to go on after him and thought the whole crowd is going to flee in droves, I thought, well, he's talking about racial profiling being at the root of this injustice. And racial profiling comes from stereotyping, when we are reduced to caricatures. And it has happened to so many groups, uh, black people, Jewish people, blondes. <laughs> it happens, and now Muslims. It happens to everyone in some form. And when I thought about it, thinking quickly on my feet that day, I realized that most of my writing going back 
25 years to when I started on The Cosby Show was about dismantling the stereotypes that obscure the fundamental similarities among us all as human beings. I mean, literally, as I looked at everything that I'd written, except for maybe that uh, article about shopping with a Park Avenue princess. <laughs> but then that's also turning a stereotype on its ear. And I want to, not to brag, but I do want to say that I have done a lot to integrate the luxury goods counters around the world. <laughs> I have really, really, before the new economy set in, I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that I played my part. And I want to acknowledge the bravery of the men, the few men in the room. Let's give them a hand. I don't know if you are, you're here under duress, but thank you for being here. <laughs> so um, what I want to talk to you about today is looking beneath the surface and embracing our humanity and our complexity. Uh, and that's something that really happens more in books, I'm afraid to say, than it does on television and in the movies. So I want to take you back to the year 1997. I had finished my tour of duty on A Different World. I had been involved in some other shows. And I wanted to write about adults. And Whoopi Goldberg approached me about doing a show about uh, a Broadway diva, a black Broadway diva who had fallen on hard times. And I thought, oh my God, I'm tailor-made for this. I grew up around all the divas. I grew up around Lena Horne. I grew up around Eartha Kitt. I grew up around Diana Sands, my own mother, Josephine Premise. These women were my baby nurses. I mean, they were, I grew up around, perfect. So we pitched it, sold it in the room, uh, gave them a beat-by-beat -beat outline of what the script would be. And then after we turned the script in, uh, these two sort of terminally suburban people from Encino, California, that glamorous hotspot, uh, called us to give us their notes. And they said, you know, everything's okay, but you really don't get this diva character. I thought, wait, I'm having an out-of-body experience. And they began to lecture me about what a diva was. And the examples that they used were people like Mercedes Rule, the actress, and uh, Bette Midler, who is lovely, but not what we were talking about. And their, oh, their yoga instructor in Studio City. Bikram, she's a real diva, they said. And I thought, wait, I've, I've died and I've gone to hell. Something, <laughs> you know, you can tell me a lot about a lot of things. Nuclear fusion, don't know anything. Politics, you can teach me something. But divas, I have a PhD in divology. There's nothing. And as I, we sat there, Whoopi and I, listening to them going, uh-huh, 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 I thought to myself, if I ever really want to tell the story of these women, and of my mother in particular, it's not going to happen. The revolution will not be televised. This will have to be in the form of a book. So uh, cut to several years later, I had written an article for Vogue about growing up biracial and being somewhat well-adjusted. <laughs> and... Uh, I made a joke in it about writing my autobiography, which I called Up From Lomans. And uh, <laughs> I, I told you I'd done a lot to further the cause of black women and luxury shopping. So I began to receive phone calls uh, from editors on you saying, when is Up From Lomans coming out? They're crazy. Would I really write Up From Lomans? And then I looked at my closets and I thought, actually, yes. <laughs> but uh, my mother at that point was terminally ill. And people had often approached her about telling the story of her life, and she'd always been very private. She had affairs with people like Richard Burton. I mean, she had a really fascinating life, but she didn't want to talk about it. Uh, but she was dying, and she said, I would like you to write this book. 
And so I did. And unfortunately, she passed away uh, before it was published. But I, I was able to bring to the world the story of this remarkable woman, the daughter of Haitian political refugees who had rickets as a child and became one of the great dancers of the 20th uh, century, having her debut at Carnegie Hall with Mary McClug Bethune and Eleanor Roosevelt, who was then the first lady in attendance, uh, becoming a chanteuse all over Europe uh, and South America, uh, a big star on Broadway. Uh, and then and perhaps really in one of her best performances, facing down death like a diva. Uh, and what she taught me was uh, that if you can find your humor and your joy in your darkest hour, nothing and no one can ever vanquish you. So you might ask, how do we go from this noble subject matter <laughs> to <laughs> four marauding hoochies in New York? <laughs> And uh, there is actually a connection. <laughs> I have actually um, dedicated this book to my mother and the ladies that I call my fairy divas uh, because they did teach me, as I say in the dedication, that every woman uh, must live by her own rules and write her own rules and that blondes don't always have more fun. Uh, so really, my mother taught me that you can't always follow the rules. And women, well-behaved women, do not make history. <laughs> so I wanted also to deal with, I was so tired of books that were all about getting to the I do. Because as those of us who are a little older and are married know, it all, the real story all happens after <laughs> the wedding in the big white dress. You've said I do. You're no longer reeking of desperation. Those men who had lost your phone number when you were sitting there alone and single, suddenly people are coming after you and you have to say, I'm sorry, I don't anymore. I can't. I'd like to. And then maybe a few years later you go, maybe Saturday. I don't know. You know, I, I like that woman from the South who's running for office. Uh, she's running for the, the governor who was disgraced in a, in a scandal. And uh, I, I can't remember her name. She's, a, uh, she's an Indian. And she said, I have been 100% faithful to my husband. I thought, well, what is being 50% faithful to your husband? It's not like every other day. Anyway, I digress. So um, at any rate, so I really wanted to deal with the reality of life after marriage and the reality of women's wayward desire because we may not have gender equality in terms of pay, but we have gender equality in terms of cheating. We are doing it in the same numbers as men. We are behaving just as badly. So uh, I also wanted to deal with certain themes. I wanted to deal with the idea of the one that got away. We all have one. Somebody from our past, I see people nodding. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> There's always that, that person who really marked you, and there's unfinished business, and you never quite got the chance to wrap it up in a bow. Uh, and what would you do if that person came back into your life and you had that opportunity? Um, I wanted to deal with the choice that women often have to make when choosing a spouse between the, the guy they're passionate about, Mario and the Maserati, who will not be there to change the diaper, will not be there when your mother has Alzheimer's, but will show you a really good time before dumping you, or Murray the mortician, who will be there, but you might be dying of boredom. <laughs> so, and, and that's a real dichotomy and a real choice. And each one of those choices uh, entails a price. So I wanted to explore the price that, that women pay in either of those uh, situations. I wanted to explore how our families of origins, the marriages that we saw, affect the choices that we make. Uh, and I wanted to explore friendship across all color lines, multicultural friendship, because uh, 
so much of literature is like a segregated country club in 1952. I don't know where these people live. <laughs> New York, you cannot go to a private school in New York and not meet people who do not look like you, no matter who you are. Uh, and I wanted to reflect that reality. And so we ended up with one flight up, and the cast of characters could read like a bad joke from the Catskills in the 50s, uh, a black, a Jew, a Latina, and an in-betweena walk into a bar. <laughs> I have uh, my, one of my characters is Monique Dawkins-Dubois. These are girls all went, by the way, to the same private school in New York. They've known each other since they were five years old, and they are now 37 years old. At any rate, just, just reaching the age of desperation. So Monique... Uh, Monique was um, the charity student. She was the better chance kid, and she's the better chance kid made good. She's now a very successful doctor. She's married to an equally successful banker. They have the perfect house in Harlem. They have two perfect children, and there is nothing going on in their bedroom. What does she do? Uh, another character is Abby Rosenfeld Adams, who hails from uh, a family of gallery owners, and she married the passionate love of her life from college, and she has all sorts of excitement and no emotional security, and she is the family breadwinner. And then she finds out that her husband's cheating. What does she do? I have Esme Sarmiento Talbot, who is uh, a Colombian heiress, and uh, she grew up very spoiled and very pampered around a cheating father. And so she married a nice Presbyterian boy next door who would never cheat on her, but now she's cheating on him. She is leading her life as an act of revenge on her dad. A very unhealthy thing to do, but something that's interesting to read about. <laughs> Reading about people who behave well is kind of a sleep aid, let's admit it, right? Uh, and then finally, I have my main character, India Chumley, who is uh, the daughter of a white British actress and uh, a black British West Indian actor who passed away, and she was raised by her crazy mother and stepfather, who's a drunken Welsh poet. Uh, and a big figure in her life was her grandmother, who is a black federal judge. And she's loosely based on Constance Baker Motley, who was another one of my mother's friends. Some of you may be familiar with her. Anyway, India is, um, she's a chocoholic, she's a purseaholic, and she's a commitment folk, but other than that, she's doing great. <laughs> she, um, <clears throat> she's a divorce lawyer, and uh, she's uh, also uh, someone who, because she grew up in chaos, when you grow up in chaos, and I grew up in, it was joyous chaos, but it was chaos, emotional chaos, you do one of two things. You either replicate the chaos, and you marry a guy who drinks and carries on, or you try to go completely the other way. Uh, you find a Republican Eagle Scout, <laughs> and you try to just have your life be regimented and live it uh, along the lines of a five-year plan, which didn't work in communist Russia and doesn't work in one's personal life. Uh, India is also uh, a wounded bird. She, is, um, she was engaged when she was 31 to the love of her life, a young man who is the scion of uh, a black corporate dynasty. And um, he, she caught him cheating on her six weeks before their wedding. And so she sent him a fax saying, it's over, don't ever call me again. And she, has, she moved to California. She did not get in touch with him. She would not take any of his calls or read any of his letters. She's just tried to shut the door. Now she's moved back to New York six years later uh, and uh, is reunited with all of her girlfriends, is uh, living with um, a lovely Frenchman, but keeping an apartment on the side as a security blanket. So would you like to hear a passage? Yes. Yes. So to set the scene... 
Uh, India is uh, going to a black tie at the beautiful Waldorf Astoria in New York. She's been invited by her friends, but it was a busy day at the office, so she brought her evening gown with her, but she didn't get to make it to the hairdresser, so the hair's up in a scrunchie. There's flyaway. <laughs> and she, very importantly, forgot to bring her makeup. So, and, you know, after 35, a little concealer beautifies America. So... <laughs> She, uh, her new boyfriend very sweetly brought her her makeup kit and she is rushing to the bathroom to primp and she suddenly runs into you-know-who, the man who broke her heart. Doesn't that always happen that way? You're putting out the garbage. The one time you walked out of your house in rollers, there he is. India made her way down the brightly lit corridor the thick carpeting muffling the sound of her steps so that she moved quietly as an angel. She looked up, admiring the moldings and the bas-reliefs of pseudo-Grecian revelers in diaphanous togas. She sensed someone had stopped right in the middle of the hallway and was staring straight at her. She looked down from the crown moldings and saw Keith Wentworth, her former fiancé. She gasped and froze in her tracks. Keith's mahogany locks framed a chiseled face completely unchanged by the hands of time. Beneath his tucks, his six-foot-three frame was still a V-shaped marvel of anatomy. Yes, ladies, you've all had one of those. <laughs> Once India resumed breathing, she tried to read his expression. Was that shock? Had the color truly drained from his cheeks? He had never had much to begin with much to the delight of his light-skinned mother. No doubt I've turned him to stone with my middle-aged office Medusa grooming, India thought with despair. The closer he gets, the luckier he'll feel that I called off the marriage. Keith started to walk toward her. Through the fluid wool of his bespoke tuxedo, each slow and deliberate step suggested the outline of a different, perfectly defined leg muscle. In... <laughs> over here. Okay. This is a good way to get us ready. Whoever you're going to go home to is going to have a good time. India's heart pounded in her chest. It was too late to turn and run in the other direction. Perhaps she could pretend she was someone else. A homely India Chumley look-alike. As he drew closer, she forced a smile. Well, at least a constipated grin. At last he stopped, inches away from her his endless lashes rising to unveil huge indigo eyes that stared directly into hers. He flashed a half-smile, revealing teeth so white and even they could have passed for cultured pearls. At 38, he was still the statue of a Roman god brought to devastatingly beautiful life. Was it any wonder she had almost been raised Carthage to his conquering Scipio? How's it going, Chumley? he said nonchalantly the way one might have greeted a colleague, not the girl one had nearly married and with whom one used to have sex that would have registered 10 on the Richter scale. By the way, I wrote that before the Haitian earthquake. <laughs> Otherwise, that line would have been lost to political correctness. God bless our brothers and sisters in Haiti. Good evening, Keith, she managed to eke out woodenly. Whew, he answered, trying to lighten the mood. Felt the breeze on that one. India couldn't think for the conga drum beats of her heart. She laughed nervously. So, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be in L.A., Keith asked. I, I moved back just a few months ago. 
hard to keep track of your moves. You don't give people much advance notice, Keith said. India refused to take the bait. She would, all right, we needed a little ambiance. <laughs> uh, that, that completely fits in because from the ballroom, the strains of a jazz band are playing. India refused to take the bait. She would never admit to Keith that their breakup had caused her to go to Los Angeles in the first place. She strongly suspected he knew. Like most beautiful men, he was fully aware of his power over women. Bigger opportunity at the firm here. They made me a partner. That's what's going on in her head. <laughs> that was bound to happen. You're good, Keith tossed out. The offhand compliment stunned India. Keith had never been generous in his praise. Maybe we can have lunch sometimes, he suggested, as he took a step or two away from her. Yes, that would be nice, India found herself answering, and to her shame, wishing he would pull out his blackberry on the spot. She wanted to kick herself for letting down her guard, but then rationalized that befriending him was actually a sign of how far in the past her feelings belonged. Platonic friendship, that was all that remained, in spite of his flawless good looks and edible body. Keith stared at her, taking in all the planes of her face. India allowed her eyes to meet his. To her shock, the blue irises conveyed affection. Just as she began to settle in for another moment's silent exchange with the man she'd nearly married, she heard a lilting female voice cry, There you are, sweetie. I've been waiting for you. <laughs> at the door of the ladies' room, a sinewy, chiffon-clad creature appeared like a wood sprite in an ancient myth. She was diminutive, five foot three or four at most, with the fat, free, lithe body of a dancer or a gymnast, a flawless complexion, big, bright brown eyes, and flowing dark hair. She rose on tiptoe to kiss Keith full on the lips, then turned her pep squad smile on India, who wanted nothing so much as for the earth to open up and swallow her whole. <laughs> India looked to Keith for an explanation. He flinched for a moment, but without skipping a beat, slipped an arm around the apparition's minuscule waist. It was not measured in inches, India thought, but in ring sizes. <laughs> Who was this nymph, this tinkerbell to her hideous Captain Hook? Suddenly, India felt the lines of her forehead gape like grand canyons, revealing the continental divide in their ages. How old was she? Not more than 26 with a soul and spirit as unblemished as her complexion, no doubt. Serena, Keith said warmly, this is India Chumley. India, what a pretty name. <laughs> Serena uttered in a voice of sheer amazement. I've never met anyone with that name. <laughs> of course you haven't. You're eight years old. <laughs> I, on the other hand, am a contemporary of Queen Victoria's. India wanted to answer but smiled instead. Clearly, Keith had never even mentioned her to this child. But then, why would he? Maybe she was just a passing fling, a wife for the evening, or a holdover from the weekend. Yet scrutinizing her fresh-faced sorority girl demeanor, India had to admit she looked like the Tawed type, not the Tibet type. Something about her carriage, her perfect prim posture, suggested Wellesley, B.A., with honors less than five years before. India... This is Serena Charles, my fiance. And then many of you have bought the book, so you'll. <laughs> so um, 
what, what my character learns, and part of what I learned in writing the book, uh, was uh, to embrace uh, a wonderful motto of um, Stephen Sondheim, the wonderful lyricist. He said, you have to learn to let go of your ideals and hold on to your dream. And that really is, for many of us as people, as women, it is the maturation process that nothing is perfect. Uh, and to forgive oneself for one's own trespasses, back in the, back in the biblical mode, <laughs> and um, to to accept the messiness of the journey, because it is a chaotic one. Uh, and bringing it back to uh, my mother, my mother had a very, very uh, difficult uh, marriage to my father, who always claimed that she was the love of his life. And I thought, gosh, I feel sorry for those who aren't. Because <laughs> she doesn't have it so good in terms of the way you're treating her. But he did love her. Uh, but she sacrificed so much. She it really sacrificed her health to this relationship and a lot of her career. Uh, and so for a long time, I had feelings of resentment about it. And, and one day on an Easter Sunday, actually, I was in a, or just before Easter, Palm Sunday, I was in a taxi and I was talking to the cab driver because it's cheaper than going to my psychiatrist. And, um, <laughs> and for some reason I got into, you know, sometimes you have these philosophical conversations with strangers and I somehow told him about my mother's journey and, and said, it's not fair and it's not right. I don't know why that happened to her and why she did that to herself. And he said, you know, Maybe that was just her path. She chose it, and she wanted it. And maybe that was her journey. And I thought about it, and I realized she would have, even knowing what the future held, she would have done it all over again the same way. And while there are things that I regret about it for her, it was her choice. And uh, she used to say to a friend of hers, things don't just happen, things happen just, or to be grammatically correct, justly. Uh, and, and that really is uh, the truth. So uh, on this beautiful Sunday, when you have blessed me with your presence and your attention, uh, I want to uh, pass on to you my mother's joie de vivre and her sense of embrace it all, embrace the journey and the madness and the chaos, and uh, let's try to be more forgiving of each other and look beyond what we see on the surface uh, and to see the, the humanity within and thank you for listening, and I welcome your questions. <laughs> so don't be shy. People always freeze when you say, do you have any questions? It's like there's a quiz, and you're going to be graded. There's no such thing as a stupid question. You can ask anything. Uh, somebody asked me earlier, well, what's it like to be on the international best dresses? I said, it just means that you've shopped too much in your life. <laughs> Hi. Um, I have read the book already, and I, I would like to know which one of the characters do you identify with the most? So the character that I identify the most with, I identify with all of them, by the way. You kind of, you're a little bit of a schizophrenic. You're Sybil when you're a writer. You sort of, your husband walks into the room, and you're going, and he goes, what's happening? <laughs> so I identify with everybody, but the one who's closest to me is the main character, India Chumley. And for that very reason, she was the hardest one to write. Um, it was very hard to crack her open. And um, I, I did a first draft of the book that I had to completely throw out because it was, I had gone too far in the exploration of people's family backgrounds. And my agent said, what the hell is this? It's called, it was then called the Cheaters Club. I don't want to be in rehab with someone's mother. I want to be in a hotel room. So 
Anyway, so I completely rewrote it, and she was very happy with it. But then she said, but there's one problem remaining. This main character, she is boring, stiff, and unrelatable. And I went, great, that's me. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, but it's a really scary thing to show your vulnerability. And I still don't know that I've completely succeeded. But uh, that, that was my doppelganger, if you will. Talk to us a little bit about your writing process. My writing process. The first part of my writing process is getting out of the house. <laughs> because otherwise, it's the, the day becomes a long wasteland between sending my child off to school in the morning with my husband and going to pick her up in the afternoon and maybe sneaking in some Oprah. So um, I, I take myself to the New York Public Library, uh, and um, I bring my computer with me. And actually, before I even begin to write the book, I create a biography of each character because you cannot write people who resonate for others unless you know who these people are. And they have to become as real to you as your girlfriends and boyfriends. Uh, and so first I, I create these biographies and then I map out the story. But that you also have to let your characters lead you because I had three different endings for this. And, and it's a discovery along the way. Suddenly the character says, do you know? That's not the way I'm going. I'm going this way. I must sound truly insane. Before you commit me, <laughs> I know that many writers will tell you the same thing. Uh, and the most important thing is there's a wonderful Yale doctoral quote. He said, outlining isn't writing. Research isn't writing. Only writing is writing. Now, I have a long list of things to add to that procrastination. <laughs> Shopping isn't writing. Cooking isn't writing. <laughs> Going to see your ailing aunt isn't writing. So I, it's just really about sticking to it, to the process. And even if it's just an hour, just writing every single day. And then rewriting, rewriting, rewriting. Literally, there was a 300-page draft that is now lining bird cages all over uh, Manhattan and the greater New York area. And however, that was not a waste, even though it was nine months of my time and I didn't get paid for it. Uh, because I knew my characters backwards, forwards, and sideways. So I don't want to have to go through that experience again, <laughs> but it was part of the journey as well. Will you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now, if you're so, willing? Yes, Bronwyn, absolutely. Uh, I am uh, working on my third book, uh, second novel, and uh, it is going to be about um, an interracial family. The mother is British West Indian with all the uptightness that that implies. <laughs> and I, I was on a panel recently about preppies, and I said, well, the real inheritors of the preppy mantle are the British West Indians. They uh, dress that way. They all wear pearls. They will tell you about where they went to school in a heartbeat, and they cannot cook. <laughs> But, but they're wonderful people. Anyway, so uh, a, a British West Indian woman married to uh, a British man, and they have four daughters. And the main character is their, el their eldest daughter, who uh, has just gone through a devastating divorce. And she's living the intelligent, independent, 30-something-year-old's nightmare. She's moved back in with her parents, with her child, and is trying to put her life back together. And a reality show descends upon the family. Uh, because I'm very fascinated, having worked in TV, with the whole phenomenon of reality television, and particularly the myth of the Prince Charming that it is foisting on young women uh, across the country. And so I really wanted to 
address that. Uh, and uh, so that's what I'm working on now, and I'm excited about it. And also, I think a, a theme that's very universal that everyone can relate to, whatever their age, background, etc. This woman is uh, trying to find her sense of hope and faith and love after her heart has really been broken, uh, which is something we've all had to do at some point if we've lived for any length of time. So, thank you. Yes, sir. We have to, and then to this elegant lady, but we have to, we have to, these brave men. <laughs> well, thank you. Maybe I shouldn't say Ken Morgan Baltimore Times, <laughs> but I'm here. I'm, I'm actually, I've interviewed you be yes. before. And yes. um, I wanted to find out um, what writer or writers would you relate to or who might have influenced you in reference to this fiction, one. And um, two, um, how much of a, um, how much uh, of your background uh, coming from a, a you know, biracial family have influenced your fictional writing? Uh, two excellent questions. So in terms of writers, I, I have very, as we discussed in, my, in our interview, I have very eclectic tastes going from African writers you've never heard of to Isabel Allende today. Uh, my, my template for this book was a, a play, actually, Claire Booth Luce's The Women, the original one from the 1930s, uh, because I, I loved her social observation. I loved her depiction of strong women and the real dilemmas that they face. Uh, and it was a very brave topic to tackle in the 1930s, divorce and infidelity. Uh, and I thought I wanted to capture that kind of sophistication and intelligence today in a modern context uh, that was uh, multiracial. I'm also a huge fan of, of Tom Wolfe's uh, because I think he also is very brave in terms of his uh, social uh, observation. Um, now, in terms of how has biracialism influenced my writing, uh, when I was in, um, in uh, college, I wrote a, a junior essay on a book by this man called Abdullah Saji, who was a lesser-known writer of the, um, uh, of the Negritude movement, which was the great literary movement that really spurred decolonization. Anyway, uh, but this was just a big, uh, big hatred-filled... <laughs> depiction of uh, mulattoes and light-skinned women, and I thought, who dumped you, buddy? You know, what's a... <laughs> this is some, some angry stuff, you know. Uh, and in, in, in much of literature, mulattoes are... We're just pitiful. Uh, we're, we're the traitor in, um, uh, in, in plays. We're, we're, ju we're just sad. Uh, so... And we're confused. And, and I always like to make the point that... People are not screwed up because they're mixed. They're screwed up because their families are screwed up. For the <laughs> same reason that other families are screwed up, there's pain, and it's not been dealt with. It has nothing to do with, uh, with color, although there are special challenges involved. But I have to say my parents did a magnificent job of handling uh, the race issue because we openly discussed it every day. Uh, my father, with all his insanity, was extraordinarily knowledgeable. My father's the white one, extraordinarily knowledgeable about black culture internationally and had enormous reverence for black culture and would teach me about African history and West Indian history and Toussaint Louverture and, you know, all these people. So um, I... I do like making the point uh, because I was raised in a home where our belief was there is no 
there are no races, there's one race, the human race, uh, that at the end of the day, it's, it's about being human. And yes, you may find your niche and you may be more comfortable with Inuits or Italians or Yanomamo Indians, but uh, at the end of the day, we all bleed and we all want the same thing. So there will always be, uh, I hate to say it, <laughs> people will be like, could she take her mulattoes and go? <laughs> We're tired of it. But uh, I just think it's an interesting prism through which to explore our attitudes about race. There's a lot about this book, in this book about exploring, we're supposed to be in a post-racial society, and yet I, I explore what young professional black people go through, um, what it's like to be a, a wealthy black person, and what the perceptions are. So um, race is a theme in my life, and, um, and it will continue to be a theme in, in my books, I think. Uh, good afternoon. I just want to start out by saying I'm a huge fan. <laughs> Thank you. And um, I just wanted to ask a question. What advice would you offer a young, aspiring writer? Okay, the first piece of advice is write, 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 write. Um, do you have a mentor? Do you write for magazines? I mean, and use every opportunity. Writing is writing, and you can you can learn writing for a magazine, you can learn writing textbooks, you can learn writing copy for advertising. So any opportunity that you have, seize it. Um, and read. Uh, I was uh, recently interviewed by a wonderful writer and she said, you know, you can always tell a writer that doesn't read <laughs> because it shows <laughs> in the emptiness <gasps> of, their, of their writing. So. And people are like, what is she reading? I, yes. She's just a, just an avid reader, an well, avid absolutely, writer. Absolutely, absolutely. She's 16, and just the things well, that she writes and reads are just beyond You should, you should go online and see <laughs> what contests. There are contests for people her okay. age, and that's a wonderful way for a young, budding writer to be noticed. Magazines right. do them. Scholastic. Uh, that book company, which is a wonderful book company, has a writer's uh, contest for teenagers in particular. She should just do it. It's the Nike motto. Just do it. This is more of a comment than a question. Um, those of us who follow you in the New York Times style section and in Vanity Fair know you as a beautiful, beautifully dressed woman. But I wanted to say that having had a chance to meet you today and listen to you, um, that stereotype of just being beautiful and beautifully dressed has been exploded because now we know that you're funny, you're warm, and you're incredibly bright. And I just wanted to thank you for that because um, you just exploded another stereotype today. <laughs> I just want to say that neither of those women is a relative or a plant. <laughs> Thank you very much for saying that. But I grew up around women. I mean, they showed me you can be beautiful and intelligent. The two are not, I mean, not that I'm beautiful, but you can look like something and, uh, and still have a functioning brain. This is a personal question. Yes. Having read Always Wear Joy. And yes. Read the other book, both of the Not books. Not a plant either, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I've read both your books, but um, always wear joy, always just touched me. And I'd like to know what your family's reaction was to that book. That's a very good Your question. immediate family. Yes. Your brother, very, your father, your um, You know, they were grateful because they knew I could have done a lot more damage. 
how did your father react? I was like, he was breathing a sigh of relief. You know, he knew everything I left on the cutting room floor. And that was actually a difficulty in the process because you want to be honest in a memoir, but you don't, these people haven't asked to be written about, and you want to, don't want to drag everybody's business through the streets. And my brother in particular had been through some challenges that I didn't feel were other people's business. Um, and my father had done a lot of things uh, that, you know, it weren't, so I got great advice actually from Diane Carroll. She said, write a draft where you put it all in and then decide. And that's really how I did it. Uh, and because it was really the story of me and my mother, I was able to leave certain things out without lying and without uh, obfuscating. So, uh, so they were not they were not upset. And bizarrely, the son of someone that I mentioned in two lines was the one person who was like, "I'm going to sue you," and I thought <laughs> because I said his father left his mother, and which everyone in New York knew, but apparently. <laughs> Apparently, at 45, this was upsetting to him to see in print. So anyway, so it was from the unlikeliest source. You know, the people that you think, oh, my God, they're never going to speak to me again. No, no. Susan. Yes. I find you delightful. Thank you. And I have two or three quick questions. Yes. Question number one uh, relates to your second book. And I want to know if... Women who are for in around forty yes. today. I, I'm around. If 40. they, okay, I know. <laughs> and it was so long ago for someone like me. The, the, the rearview mirror. <laughs> I want to know if your story of their sex life is representative. If women who are in their forties today of a certain economic class, yep. does it go across? Are those women sleeping around as much as your, you know, your? Your book. I hope so. Yeah, I want. Yeah, we want to know. We, we want because less now. Be, what, less now because of the bed bug in Penn Station. They're afraid to go to a hotel. We, we were too uptight to have that much fun. So I really want to know if if that is kind of representative. That's one thing. Secondly, um, I'm hoping that you will one day write a book about. Uh, going to private school and the, 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 what it's like as a, I want to say, a little girl from 5 to 16 or something like that. I've never read a, uh, a book about a black person right. or a mulatto person. It's one and the word. same in this country. I mean, <laughs> and, a, and, a, and, and someone who is from a well-to-do family. Right. I have no clue as to what that life is about. There is a wonderful book called Black Ice by Lorene Carey. Oh, I've read Black her. Ice. Yeah. Now, she's not from That's a wealthy great. background, oh, but that was a that. wonderful I, memoir of being this yeah. oddball in a prep school. It sure is. But then she didn't write anything else? I don't no, think after she didn't. that. She did not we after were all that. shocked. And that was a very good book. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so uh, in terms of the question of are the women in their 40s, um, I mean, statistically speaking, they are across class lines, across all lines. And what has been interesting to me with the book, I did a, a reading in uh, Southampton, and this young woman came up to me and she was grabbing my hands. And I thought, what is, hello, are we having a moment? What's going on here? And she was very lovely. Uh, and afterwards, I learned that she had nearly left her husband. She had this affair with someone. And I think what she felt was gratitude that someone acknowledged this happens. 
It doesn't mean you're a hoe or a bad person. And by the way, I want to clarify, there's only one character in the book who really carries on like a wild person, and she is the most based on reality, by the way, the Latin character, Esme. She, the wildest one was, I mean, she's, she is literally a documentary. Um, so the others cheat for various reasons. And I had an interesting conversation with a man who said, I think women cheat for one reason, love. I don't think that's always the case. But <laughs> there is also the trainer. But um, so I do think it goes on more than people admit. And it's, it's been very interesting because a lot of people, to your point about how a certain generation goes, <gasps> a lot of women said, what are you writing about? It's scary to people to even entertain the thought because they have thought about it or they have done it. So I do think if for those for whom it's not happening, they're thinking about it. Uh, I, you know, hello, we have eyes and libidos too. We're not just sitting at home knitting, you know, waiting, <laughs> waiting for you to come home from the IHOP waitress tiger, you know. <laughs> so um, I, I wanted to address what I see around me. I mean, my friends who are ladies, quote unquote, they've all thought about it. They have, may not have crossed the line, but everyone has had that thought, so. Many of us have grandchildren. I personally have grandchildren who live in a predominantly white community and attend schools that are 95% white. The prospect of them marrying white is there. When their father was in high school, public and private school, I told him two things. Well, one thing I told him, he must marry somebody black. Now, of course, I have no control over what my grandchildren do, but their environment, you know, uh, my son lived in a black neighborhood. He went to friend's school, but he lived in a, a black neighborhood. His children live in a white neighborhood, go to white schools, so their environment. What do you feel about the increasing um, uh, incidents of uh, intermarriage with other races? Because I think it's... I mean, I've seen it in my husband's family. It's more and more and more and more. And incidentally, I am the grandmother of quadruplets. I thought you would want to know. Ooh. So I could have four. How often do you babysit? <laughs> well, I mean, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for people marrying across the so-called color line. You know, personally, I think our whole vision of race is going to be exploded in the next 20 years with the, the discoveries from the Genome Project. And I, I recently spoke at Wellesley, and there were several different groups involved. And one of them was Ethos, the women of African descent. And I said, frankly, that should be everybody in this room because we all descend from the mitochondrial DNA of that lady in Ethiopia. So, so I understand your feeling of, gosh, are we losing and I don't think you have to lose. I think you can gain and blend. To me, the only issue comes up when people just forget their heritage completely and don't talk about it. And um, I, our children, I don't think, are going to perceive, they're not going to have these strict categories, I'm white, I'm black, I'm whatever. They're going to say I'm human. But to me, the important thing is for us to pass on that sense of this is where this part of your family came from. This is your ancestry. This is your history. A people without a knowledge of a, its history is like a tree without its roots. You, you, they can't just, you know, they're not topsy. They didn't just, <laughs> never was born, <laughs> never was. They've got to know where they came from. And so, but 
to another point, sorry, to reverse myself here, just because you're marrying another black person doesn't mean you're not in a mixed marriage. Uh, I know someone who was from a proper British West Indian background. You know, they went to Episcopal Church. <laughs> they sang hymns, no gospel. And she married a guy from Tennessee, uh, garden variety, black southerner. They might as well have been from different universes. I mean, her family had no frame of reference for him, and that wasn't the source of their problems, but they were from completely different cultures. So I think we have to take a step back and look at culture. Um, and at the end of the day, I guess for me, you want to marry somebody who understands you, whether they're blue or green. And, but I will say, I, I drum it into my daughter. We talk about everything that she is. And I say, later in life, you're going to figure out what you feel most an affinity for. Um, but you must never forget everything that you come from. And you must never deny anything that you come from. And you, you just, this is who you are. So I think what is being lost is people are going, oh, we are the world. And my child blends, so who cares? You know, and that, that's sad. Um, so. Thank you. And Tennessee is my birth state. <laughs> Let me just say he was not from your background is all I could tell you. <laughs> I venture to say your family and his family went to completely different churches. <laughs> Hi. Hi. I just wanted to share. Um, I am of West Indian heritage as well, and I write. My medium is poetry, and I just wonder. I write about um, my love's journey, and just in terms of being of West Indian heritage, yeah. how we view that type of honesty and reveal. I'm just wondering from the West Indian side of, um, you know, your parentage, how are they responding to, you know, the reveals in your, in your writing? Um, well, my mother was always very supportive of everything I did, even though, I mean, she had been asked many times to write her own story, and she simply would not do it. And yet, she understood that the story needed to be told in all its good, bad, and ugly. Uh, and so she realized I'm of a, another generation. My aunt, her sister, who was alive to see the story, said, no one has any right to tell you how to do this. This is your story. So that was very supportive. Um, and it is. It's a different generation, and it's a different... But, you know, for me, I am very respectful of my West Indian heritage, but at the end of the day, if you're going to write, you have to come raw. <laughs> you, no one wants to read your little pinched. <laughs> that, was, that was version one of India. <laughs> Boring and unrelatable. You, you have to, uh, Barbara Cook, the singer, said to a class that uh, you have to get up there and show the audience what life has done to you. Uh, and that, as a writer, you are there to communicate. And, and frankly, I've been through, I've seen my family go through a lot. I've been through a lot. And the sense of shame over, oh, this one's a drunk, or this one doesn't have a job, or this one is unfaithful, that's life. <laughs> that's being human. Uh, so, and show me a family that says they don't have any of that, and I'll show you a big band of liars. So, I do have to ask, what astrological sign are you? I'm just really curious. I am such a stereotypical Leo. It's sad. <laughs> I'm loud. I like fancy, shiny things. See, I knew there was an affinity, a Leo. <laughs> Leo. I'm a Leo. I'm a Leo. Now, we have to ask, are you a July Leo or August? I'm an August Leo. Uh, <laughs> no, but the joke was on me, because I'm born August 15th, which is the day of the Assumption of Mary. The, okay. 
So I think that cursed my dating life. And then we were in Rome where I was born on my 40th birthday, which is eight years back in the rearview mirror. And uh, my husband woke up and said, you can buy anything you want today. Well, every store in Rome was closed. because. Of- <laughs> and the offer was good for one day only. So <laughs> there you have it. Hi, um, I just want to say, first of all, it's very great meeting you, and I'm just starting to um, read the beginning of your book. And I want to know for someone like myself who is not writing, I'm thinking of two books. I know nothing about writing or whatever, Mm -hmm. and I never in my younger years used to read a lot. So if I'm going to write a book that's going to educate someone on something, how do I start? I mean, I'm thinking about using a research paper um, that Mm -hmm. I'm doing for school. Mm -hmm. Do I just take those words, because a lot of things are cited from other people. How do I turn that into something, even though I'm citing everything, how do I turn that into something that's, a, that's my work to actu- actually educate the consumers? Okay, you may want to, do you have contacts at any magazines? Because it's always good to start with an article. And okay. Because that gives you a template, um, and it gets you to think through some of the themes that you're trying to deal in. And also, you want to put it in layman's terms. I mean, most people don't want to read something that is for the expert, right? It sounds to me like you're trying to translate something for the, for the average consumer as opposed to somebody. Yeah, I'm writing my paper for my master's. Okay. So a lot of it's like um, educating the consumer. Right. So even though I'm doing a lot of citing from other right. authors, it's still going to be, in a sense, my work. And their right. work... Is going to, and I said to myself, how do I turn this into uh, something for myself, you know, not knowing anything? I would anything. start with an article. I would approach a magazine or a newspaper about okay. doing a short article on one of the topics in your master's thesis. Okay. Because a thesis is not a good beach read or book <laughs> or commercial read. I mean, most my father never, my father can read anything, and he fell asleep halfway through my thesis. So, <laughs> you know, you want to make it more in layman's terms. You mm-hmm. want to make it more accessible. So okay. if you do a short, you know, five-page piece, okay. um, that will help you, and it might even serve as kind of a, a, um, a, a book proposal. Uh, I think you got to get yourself out of your academic head and use all that knowledge, because we also don't want to read, you can cite some people, but I don't want 80,000 footnotes in a, in a book that I'm going to pick up that's a, a, a how-to. Um, I, I simplify, I think. Simplify. You know, look at those books, the computers for dummies, <laughs> the internet for dummies. I mean, think in layman's terms. So, and I want to say again to the blessed grandmother soon-to-be of quadruplets, <laughs> You are, you are one of the most important links that those grandchildren will have to who they are. So God bless you. Be in their lives. Tell them the stories. Bore them. Say, oh, Grandma, here she comes again with the story. But they will never forget. And having lived around you, they will never, for, they cannot forget uh, who they are. So they will not be lost. They will be an extension. Okay. Thank you so much, Susan. Thanks. Let's get Susan a hand. <laughs>